welcome to Hard-Earned Wisdom, a podcast about the life lessons learned while stumbling through trauma, grief, loss, and unmet expectations. My guests share personal stories from the trenches, and most importantly, the hard-earned wisdom that I hope will inspire new ways of surviving and thriving in difficult life circumstances. In this episode, Nicole shares her expertise on diversity, equity, inclusion, and culturally responsive leadership. We talk about her work on helping difference get along, the meaning of race in America today, and what needs to happen in the next 400 years. So I guess just as a few warm-up questions, like what have you been up to the last couple of years? Summary of two years of your life. Yeah, so I uh, I was I've been I was interested in getting my doctorate, and I finally finished, and so I'm super excited about that. Wanted to be credible or more credible in the leadership uh, space, and at the same time was trying to grow my business. Um, I think when we when we first met, I just started Lively Paradox pretty much, mm-hmm. and um, now I have a pretty decent. Um, sized organization and what's interesting is that just last year I think my client my clients in the market have convinced me that even though I might not want to focus on diversity and culturally responsive leadership I have an interesting way to approach it that um, that resonates with people and perhaps my leadership stuff isn't all that (laughs) interesting and so I did finally accept it and started focusing more on diversity equity inclusion inside schools mostly Mm -hmm. um but for all of my clients so that's pretty pretty much what I've been up to (laughs) congratulations on finishing a doctorate that is no small feat yeah it's a lot of work yeah, I have two siblings with PhDs and you know me and my little bachelor's degree that I'm proud of but I, it's beyond me how you can focus and work and stay committed to one topic. It's always been just outside of what I think I could ever commit to. Like what, what was the incentive for you or the motivation or like, did you struggle getting through it? Because please tell me there was like a struggle getting through it that you're not that superhuman. (laughs) I've never wanted to quit something so much in my whole life. But it was less about the rigor of the study, less about the writing. It was more about the critique. Oh, interesting. Insistent. Doesn't matter what you put in front of people, they were going to criticize. It's interesting because if I felt like my clients cared about the critique, I would have been open to it. But I was not getting my doctorate in order to be credible in academia. I was getting my doctorate so that I could be credible in industry. Mm -hmm. And so here I am with all this experience in industry. I know what industry leaders need, want, think and feel and believe. And academics just think about the world differently. It's not wrong, just differently. And so I would get these critiques to say, hey, you made this statement. Prove it. (laughs) You know, like you can't you can't say that. How do you know that? And. So then I would add in all this research and I don't know, you probably know from your experience as well. People don't care to in one paragraph read five references. As we got super close to the end, 
I just didn't want to talk about it anymore. This thing that I'd loved, um, I was just tired of talking about it. I, I, in fact, I have not picked up anything related to that paper since they told me I passed committee. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I almost wish I didn't pick something I love. You know, they tell you, make sure you pick something you love because you're going to be thinking about it, talking about it all the time. I almost wish I didn't because now something I love has turned into something I don't ever want to talk about. again. <laughs> it's interesting. It's a hard balance between, you know, follow your passion. Well, great. But, you know, if you have to do it every day and you have to charge for it, you always have to find a balance. What can I do for work? That mm-hmm. is lucrative enough. I can live the lifestyle I want. And how do I fit passion into my life? And everyone has to find their own formula. So bravo for finishing it when you wanted to quit. You mentioned when we first started talking, the interest in leadership versus teaching about diversity and inclusion. Yeah. How, How have you navigated that and landed on focusing on diversity and inclusion? And like what kind of considerations have you made? For me, they go together. I think that's why I was getting so stuck. Um, My entrance into the space was around diversity related to personalities. You know, I'm an engineer whose personality completely disagrees. And so I learned about difference and helping difference get along by being the odd person out just in the way I think about things and recognizing personally firsthand that my voice while it was challenging for me, helped us get better outcomes as an engineering team. And so I got to see the value of diversity in ways that, you know, I I think not everybody does. And there were two things I learned from that. One, it's really hard on the, the person who's the odd one out. You know, that's that's the person who has to adjust. That's the one who has to be exceptional in order to be accepted. Um, That's the one who's always translating, (laughs) you know, language in their head so that the other uh, people or the other groups will understand what they're saying. And in that experience, I learned that good leaders know how to help difference get along, period. My best engineering managers, the best directors when I was working in like operations groups or plant managers were the ones who could figure out how to make this machine work with all these people who had drastically different skill sets. And so as I started uh, shifting into other careers, that I, I just, I don't know if I had a natural talent or if I built the skill to truly help difference get along. And sometimes that difference was based on things we could see. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, because the United States is so segregated, I would be in drastically segregated companies. So if I was in a, a, a company that was founded by black people, I would be with all black people. You know, if I'm in the state of Utah, the state's what, 98% white, I'd be with leadership teams that are, you know, 100% white. Mm -hmm. And yet they still would have diversity challenges. They still would have inclusion challenges. Um, And so I started to say, all right, what are the strategies in general for helping difference to get along? And if I can get uh, people to get their minds around that, then that's where I want to focus. 
But when you say to most people diversity, they think, I call them the three deadlies, race, sex, sexual orientation, maybe religion, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was balking against that, not because I don't think those are problems, but because I had built my expertise in a different space. And I felt like when people were asking me about that, they were asking me about it because I had black skin, not because they necessarily, it was almost like, are you pushing me towards that because I have black skin? I, I see my competitor as Patrick Lencioni. So why are you pushing me that way? Um, but last year, maybe the year and a half ago, um, via a referral, I had a client who just wouldn't take no for an, for an answer. I was like, hey, listen, I wrote the book. Here's the field guide for you to have your own internal people do it. You ain't got to pay me nothing. <laughs> I'll just have at it. And they were like, no, we want you to do it. <laughs> and they just would not take no for an answer. And I said, okay, just for this, just for this one uh, situation. And the difference about schools and the way they've been able to pull my heartstrings along is that, um, you know, some of my clients make seats for a living, or maybe they make pharmaceuticals for a living, or maybe they provide some healthcare service. For schools, the product is actually children. There are kids at the end of those data points. And as I'm able to move the needle around things like race and children with special needs, there are kids who are impacted and they got me. <laughs> and so here I am seeing hundreds of people say, wow, I finally get it. I was, I wasn't, I didn't want to come to this session. I didn't know what I had to learn or I was afraid of what I had to learn. And now people who are really tying these ideas and concepts into, into how they approach children every day, helped me to see that, all right, maybe I didn't want to do it, but maybe it's what I should be doing. That was a long answer. No, it's really interesting in the sense life pulls us in ways we never could have planned. I mm -hmm. think that's the case for any of us. And you can, you can say, here's what I want. Here's what I'm going to set out to do. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be a journey we don't expect. Mm -hmm. um, I have a lot of follow-up questions, even just with these, you know, getting to know your introduction stuff. Because like you, you mentioned how much of people asking you to talk about diversity inclusion is because of the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. And how, how do we get past that? One of the things that I have been reflecting on and the work that I'm trying to do on myself is I need to see race because many white people are trained to not see race. And mm -hmm. I've tried to think a lot about that. How do I see race? be more conscientious. Obviously, we're, we're all just human beings. Mm -hmm. but how we present in the world does impact how we get to live in the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't really, I mean, it's, it's a big overarching question with no simple answer. Mm -hmm. But how do we get better at seeing race in a way that's helpful for inclusion and really seeing each other's humanity? Because mm -hmm. I don't think we can just ignore the fact that you know, there's gender difference, there's right. differences in the color of our skin, there's all kinds of ways that we can choose to discriminate, or we can mm -hmm. choose to recognize and still include. Yeah. I don't know if you have any wisdom 
or, or thoughts or advice on how do we yeah. get better at seeing and including? You know, I, that's, that's the unfortunate thing. I do have lots of advice and lots of answers that I thought no one cared about. And it turns out that, um, that people think it's pretty insightful and I'm still trying to accept that, you know, because for me, I'm like, eh. but I'm grateful that you mentioned gender um, because gender is on a spectrum. You know, we, we think that there are two genders, there's male and female, but there's all kinds of scientific evidence around chromosomes that would say that there are people who look male, actually female, look female, have, you know, and then when you start adding in sex and all the ranges of things that can um, occur in terms of sex, in terms of what happens on the outside versus the inside, and um, that's a range. People understand a range or a spectrum when it comes to wealth, for example. We know what it looks like to be poor. We know what it means to be so wealthy that money is just a concept. And we can put people along the spectrum all the way through that. Age is another one. We know what it looks like to be a baby, what it means to be a toddler, a teenager, all the way to an elder. We, we get ranges in all other aspects. And race is one of those things that we have been convinced that there's a range that there's black on one end and white on the other end and that there's this spectrum between we don't think about it in that way or talk about it in that way but that's exactly what we we've set up every single system in our nation on this social hierarchy as if there's a range but the human genome project has been very clear there is no range there's one race the human race something is inconsequential as melanin is what has us separated. And so while all those other differences that I mentioned, gender, sex, sexual orientation, and age are related to a range or a spectrum of difference, and it is a social construct that we have bought into that some people are hierarchically better than others, race wasn't invented until the 1400s and it was a political construct in order for people to be able to make money. And so my simple answer, it's gonna sound simple, but it's incredibly hard to do, is that in the short term, we have to understand that every single system in this, um, if we just stick to the US, we, we, we don't have capacity to go on the globe. Every system in this nation is based on race and racism. In the short term, if we don't pay attention to that, we will be complicit in that process. We will make it worse. But in the long term, and I'm thinking four, five, six hundred years, we have to dismantle the concept that there's race and a, a spectrum. It was made up and we have to get back to a point where we don't even believe in it. So in short, short term, treat everybody the same, try to figure out as best possible how we can get rid of disparities. If we don't see skin color, we'll miss it all together. But in the long term, this myth of race is a ridiculous fallacy in which we've built this entire house upon. And so we've got to start over. And um, I would venture to say that 90% of the people I meet have no idea that race is invented that we, we used to talk about people in terms of kinship, not skin color. 
that we used to talk about people in terms of ethnicity or country of origin. You know, I might have been Nigerian and Irish and Cameroonian. I, nobody res- referred to people and said black and white and Latinx, you know. Yeah. So we got to get we got to get back to that. But we're not long term thinkers in the West. No, we are not. We're very short term thinkers. Yeah. About what I can do for my life while I'm living, maybe for my children. But we don't think very far beyond that. Right. It's quarter by quarter if you're in the <laughs> sector. It's term by term if you're mm-hmm. in the public sector. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've yeah. got a big problem there. And, and that causes us problems. Yes. Yeah. Short-sighted thinking causes us problems. I think I really, I guess there's just so much to think about because I hear what you're saying. Um, and I completely agree. And now what, right? I think we all have to check ourselves and think more about how we perceive. I think my, in my own experience, I remember like, this is a few jobs ago, a few years ago, I worked with a girl from Jamaica and I was talking with a white colleague who said, so like, is it more appropriate to say African-American or can I say black? And I was like, well, she's from Jamaica. So I don't think it's, I mean, her skin's black. And it was just like this weird sort of, what's the politically correct term? How do we, and I was like, if we even need to address that at any point, mm-hmm. if we need to address that at any point, right? But it's just these little moments where an opportunity to learn is presented and race has so much stigma. Right. But to get, to get past how we're thinking about it and open it up as, mm-hmm. you know, I can look at someone who's white, quote unquote white, and compare the color of skin on our arms and it's all over the map, right? Right. And it's so much, it is, it's a social construct. It's, it's a story that we learn to tell. I think gender is the same way. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very conservative um, religious community in Utah. So, you know, you all, you all know what I'm talking about if you have spent any time in Utah. And even though I've kind of walked away from a lot of that in adulthood in terms of the practice of religion, those ideas and constructs have stayed with me. Mm-hmm. And I've had to check myself many times about how I choose to present or the role I choose to play in public based on what my perceived expectation is of some sort of acceptable or right answer. For mm-hmm. me, that's been much more around gender, about here's how a woman should behave. Mm-hmm. Here's what's acceptable for a woman, whether that's being more accommodating or polite or you know whatever that looks like Mm -hmm. and I think we we all in some somewhere in our lives have a social construct that has been presented to us and that we're struggling to fight against Mm -hmm. whether it's sexual orientation or gender identity or the color of our skin so I think there there's just so much to unpack and think about yeah and how we view it and how we how we comply or don't yeah and because of the way our educational systems are set up and really every, every single institution in the States, we are not really incentivized to look at it. It's one of the few topics that we're just like, I don't want to know about that, (laughs) you know? Um, And you can find people all over who say, I don't want to know about that. And if you use the example of um, the woman from Jamaica, 
Well, she's Jamaican. That's what makes the most sense. And anybody from Jamaica would be Jamaican. And what I've, I've tried to help people to see is that, yes, race is like all other forms of difference in that, yes, we have social constructs associated with it. But it's also different in that since the census was invented, we have changed the categories of race at least two dozen times. And so we pick and choose who's white. We pick and choose who's black. We adjust those categories over time. And hardly anyone seems to realize that in order to make chattel slavery palatable, we created this thing whereby it was like, oh, well, if that's your mother, we can tell that you have that particular thing. And so let's set up the system and structure in order to um, to be able to convince people. Because let me back up. Well-meaning people wouldn't agree to chattel slavery on the surface, especially not well-meaning people who are saying we're starting a country based on freedom and equality and humanity for all. You have to convince someone that this group that you want to enslave is not human. And so there was an entire movement in healthcare or in medicine, in science, in politics to convince people that there was something inherently inferior about black skin. And so, you know, my son and I talk about this often because I, re I regularly am trying to figure out how to get the, the comparisons right because it's so complex, you know, mm -hmm. that when I say, well, there are some associations with gender and some associations with sex and some associations with gender expression, right? There are some but there are literally no correlations on this spectrum of differences at the gene level between white and black people. None. We completely made it up. And so when you say, you know, when you put white people's skin next to each other, they're all the same. My husband in the winter is lighter than you are. And he is a black man. Um, Sarah Rector, richest, first richest black woman in the state of Missouri, in order for her to be able to have the rights of white people, they classified her as white. And she was a black woman born on native land. They didn't know what to do. And so when you bring up the Jamaican woman, I'm like, it's, it doesn't take long if you just start to question race that you start to see, well, wait, there are holes in this. So is a white man from South Africa, African-American, if he moves here? Technically, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to dismantle race as a, as a construct um, because there's nothing about it that is, is real in the long term. But in the short term, we have to do our internal work um, to understand our implicit associations and biases so we can see how we're upholding these systems because we miss all of that too. So when you presented at one of our conventions the infamous convention the yeah. infamous convention yes <laughs> you always brought so much energy in the funnest way I, I loved what you were able to bring to that 
I loved everyone that worked there. So I don't want to, I don't want to. I, loved, I loved everyone that worked there too, but you were in the minority about how good or not that my presentation at that conference was. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a certain white bread Utah vibe, yeah. which is what it is. And you just brought all these wonderful questions. So when you were talking about implicit bias, like I can understand what it is and go, oh, great. So since that being, ex- being introduced to that, I have taken a lot of the tests that is at Harvard that actually yeah. hosts and perpetuates yeah. the testing so we can all think about it. I haven't gone through every single category of the implicit bias test, yeah. but I was surprised that I didn't have a strong correlation. It was the one about gender and career and gender and family. Oh, yes. And the first test I took was about... I want to say um, like Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern culture versus like Western culture. Mm-hmm. I, I'm totally screwing up the, the, the words and the terminology that I'm using. Well, there's like certain tests, so it's kind of hard yeah, to remember. Them. Yeah. But I, you know, it's like you're, you're trying to compare these two things. So you have to, you know, anyone who's listening is implicitbias.org. I should double check this so I can give people the right direction here. But the first test I took, you're like trying to figure out the format of the test. And so I was thinking really hard and not trying to overthink it, but Mm. understand it, right? So, yeah, I learned a lot about myself, but also you just start to think differently about what am I seeing and not seeing? And what is my subconscious doing that my conscious mind isn't fully aware of? Yeah. So it's a really, it's a really good process for anyone who's trying to do the work. Yeah dismantle all of these structures that we've inherited right what other you know whether you want to comment on implicit bias and testing or other things that how how do we each individually do the work of dismantling racism and the idea of race which is false yeah yeah so just keep in mind that the idea of race some people want to just jump to that and, and they go, oh, we're just one race, the human race, and we got to, if we accept that, then everything will be better. Uh, sometimes I think that's a little bit of spiritual malpractice because race and racism is built in every single system. So you can't quite jump to that. You have to have some short-term things you're going to do uh, for the now. And I think that's what you're asking me about. There are these huge events that happen, like what happened with George Floyd. And I call those shark bites. Um, And I call them shark bites because no reasonable person watches that on television and says, well, I mean, what's the problem? That's what should have happened. Right. Like hardly a reasonable person would look at that and say that's what needed to happen. Now, there's some people who will. But hardly to me, hardly a reasonable person would. And you get lots of support that comes out from everywhere when there's a shark bite. But regularly in my classes, I say, I ask my classes how many people get killed every year from shark bites across the globe. And it's interesting. People think hundreds. And it's like, no, that number is less than 10. Less than 10 people each year die from shark bites. And then I follow up with another question. And that's how many people you think each year get killed from mosquito bites? And when people start thinking about mosquito-borne illnesses like West Nile and malaria, they're like, oh my gosh, hundreds of thousands? And I'm like, no, one million people die every year from mosquito bites. 
And so it's these little subtle things. We have adages that tell us about a death by a thousand cuts, right? There are these small things that we do every day to make people feel less than. And yet by themselves, it's just a little mosquito bite. And they're even more dangerous because no one will believe you. People will go, oh, well, you're just imagining. Maybe you're just imagining that. Maybe, you know, you should just, maybe, maybe that's just the way, that's just the question they would ask. I get that all the time. And so I, I, especially as it relates to race, I tell people, you always have to look at patterns, not exceptions. If ever you're looking at the exceptions to the rule, there will always be exceptions. But if you look at the patterns, you'll always see the problem. And so what are the patterns as it relates to race in the spaces where you work? So if you happen to be in recruiting, if you see a pattern where you have a decent amount of uh, racial diversity coming into your organization, but somehow by the time you get to the highest levels of organization, there's no uh, racial diversity, that, that's, that, that data tells you there's a problem. We don't need to study it. We need to figure out where are the, the linchpins in the process that are causing people to get stuck. And we know what that looks like because we've done it before for gender. Now we make progress on gender and then we take, take two steps forward and three steps back. I don't know how we're going to get our heads wrapped around this, but we progress is regularly followed by regression. But in schools, it's evidenced by no matter what the wealth category, when you control for race, there's always a disparity. And so what does that mean? That means that we've got some kind of implicit associations and biases at play, or in some cases, even overt biases at play that are impacting those numbers. And we got to dig in. And it's not about other people doing the work. I care about police brutality. I think it is important. It's not my work to do. My work to do is in my space, in my area, in my industry, uh, because listen, there's enough work in banking, in utility, in legal fields, in <laughs> learning and development. You know, I love the people at Inside Out, but I, and I, but I push the CEO and the founder to say, listen, when I look at your program, there's one black person in the videos and that black person can't figure out how to walk up the stairs. So you don't have to tell somebody to be discriminatory. What you just did was put subconsciously in their head something that you shouldn't be. And we've, those are the things we have to work on. Yeah, yeah. And it takes each of us. Ernest got really oh, loud. Okay. Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're okay. fine. I thought it was like the vacuum in the background or something. I'm like, ooh, someone's cleaning your house. Get it done. <laughs> well, I wish. Yeah, I think we, we all need to really expand our understanding, challenge ourselves, be willing to speak up. And there's, there's no easy answer. There's no quick fix. And I think that's my weakness is always like, well, let's just fix it. Let's just yeah. put that really profound quote on Facebook. And then everyone will see and understand. You know, it's, <laughs> no, it's never going to be enough. And I know I have a lot of work to do personally. Um, and all of us need to find what is the work that I can take on? What is the work that I need to do yeah. influence that I can have? Because you're right. It's not one industry. It's all of us collectively moving the needle 
and making a more inclusive world built yeah. on equality and getting rid of judgment and, and biases as much as we possibly can. I don't think as human beings, we just flip a switch and we're, we're beyond it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's work and it's a constant challenge. And yeah. it's a And there's always a tipping point. You know, there's nothing that's preventing you and I from getting together and saying, hey, in our shared spaces, we're each doing this. How can we collectively um, tackle it? You know, there's opportunities for uh, people in healthcare to get together with folks in education or people in manufacturing or tech to get together with people in healthcare and talk about, okay, how are we going to um, resolve these disparities? But I can tell you what's, to me, this is just Nicole's opinion, what is the, the greatest threat to being able to do something about it are these people who are just like, well, why don't we just stop talking about it and it might go away? Let me tell you what I know for sure. If curing racism was as simple as Black people stop talking about it, <laughs> we oh. stopped talking a long time ago. <laughs> right. Oh. Yeah, things don't go away on their own. They just don't. I have so many questions about you and your life that I wanted to ask. And we got right into like the heart of things really quickly, which is great. Um, I hope you don't mind if I back up for a second and ask you. You can ask me whatever whatever you want. You can kind of weave in and out of whatever is interesting to you. My intern is uh, sick today. So I've got time that I wasn't planning on. Okay. All right. You shared with me the book that you are finishing or publishing soon. Yeah, yeah. I was, able, I was able to read your book, <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. I think <laughs> in in many ways there's a strong overlap with with what I've been trying to do with this podcast and what you're trying to say in the book, which is life is going to be hard, but you have to find a way to get past it. You yeah. will always be presented with something you never expected. Yeah. Whatever is causing you that emotional pain, your word is the unthinkable. Like these unthinkable things happen. And I've just talked about, you know, depression, pain, um, the expectation that was not realized is really so much of what I've experienced. Anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote from your book, if you don't mind. Oh, I love it. I love, I love hearing (laughs) quotes from my own book. So you, You've obviously been through your share of unthinkable events, right? You talk about everything from divorce, paying off debts that really weren't yours to pay off. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've lost both your parents. You've, you've dealt with some really incredible weighty things in your life. You say, quote, I haven't gotten to the place where I welcome the unthinkable. What has happened is that I have come to see that the high moments have not been the ones to give me depth and substance, but rather it has been the midnight fire call, the deportation struggle, the death, the pain, the hurt, the unthinkables that built the strength of my resolve. So I'm curious. Who wrote that, man? That sounds good. That looks like someone with some serious wisdom to share. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the journey of most of our lives, I think, is as a child, it's about all these great things you're going to do in adulthood, work hard, everything's going to turn out. And then you go through these messy middles, I think, for most people in their 20s, where they're ambitious, they're working hard, it's going to be great. And then they're in their 30s, maybe 40s, it's like, it just feels like it's unraveling and not building. Right. 
and how how would you recommend to people that they get in the headspace of this is growth, this is where the wisdom comes from, so that they can stay in the arena, deal with the pain and the difficulty, and actually convert it to something meaningful in their lives? Cindy, I wonder if I can tell people that. Maybe you can't. You, you know, because I don't know that you would have been able to tell me that. I had to experience it. Yeah. Um, what I hope is that I can save someone uh, from a bout of deep depression and that leads to suicide because they don't think they can get out of it. That's what I hope, that I can give them some example that, listen, it's, trust me on this, it's going to be good on the other side. But I know that you wouldn't have been able to tell me that before I experienced it for myself. But um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the one who I think she said something like beautiful people are not just born, you know. And it's not that I thought I was a terrible person before, but these kinds of experiences have really opened my heart up to be able to see people more clearly. And while I don't know if you need that, um, I feel like the wor- world is a little easier to navigate when you don't have it, actually, <laughs> when you can walk through the world being a little more objective and logical and reasonable and not as empathetic and compassionate day-to-day struggles kind of like roll off of your back. But now it's, uh, I feel like I have a deeper purpose to be there for others. Um, it's interesting, right before we got on this call, someone called me, um, she doesn't know me that well, and I could tell something was wrong, and so I asked about it. Even that is something that I wouldn't have done before. Right? <laughs> I probably would have completely missed it. And then when she starts telling me about her story of, you know, her husband of 15 years is, is, is having an affair. Um, but that's not the, the worst part of it. The woman he's having an affair with, he considers to be his best friend, you know? So he's like, I mean, ugh, like, in, like, is there anything more heart wrenching? Not that you're just out here doing whatever, but that you really care about this person. And the Nicole before the unthinkables would have had all kinds of advice. The, the Nicole after the unthinkables that I've had so far knows that her path is not my path. Um, her way is not going to be my way. I believe that if she wants to, they can get through it. If she wants to, if she doesn't want to, she'll be fine. Whereas before, I had some pretty firm beliefs <laughs> about these kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> don't you take that. You leave him, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And now I'm just like, you know what? Uh, the path is not always straight. Um, and, and honestly, I think it's one of the reasons why I had to give a caveat about the subtitle of the book. This is not a step-by-step, do this, do this, do this. It's more just here are the kinds of things that you need to have in your toolkit when the unthinkable happens. And I don't know how people do it without faith, even though I know some people, you know, don't believe in a higher power. I don't know how people do it without some level of um, purposeful 
education and, and what I call that is just some something that you're uniquely qualified to do. doesn't matter what that to do is, but something. Um, and then just some resilience. <laughs> you know, I, I call it something else, but <laughs> a little bit of a res- resilience that this determination, the Finnish call it Saisu, that you might knock me down, but I can get up. Even after I say all that, I wonder if I can convince someone if they haven't experienced it yet. I don't know. I don't think yeah. I can. Yeah, it's true. Because if they haven't, if they haven't experienced any of it, if, if they're just too young in life to have been through really heavy, shitty things, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it's just an idea. They don't feel it. It's not real. It's, it's just theoretical. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. Someday it's abstract. Right. Yeah. yeah I think, you know, if you're in the, the darkest depth of it, it's so hard to picture it ever getting better. Like yeah. there's, still, there's still beauty ahead. There's still things to live for. Yeah. And that's where it's, I think, you know, you, you talk about like before dealing with challenges versus after. And as you get older and, and achieve more wisdom and perspective and all of those things, I think the tendency is more to just sit and listen and recognize that like, let me understand where you are. You be where you are. I'm not going to try to change it or give you a quick fix. It's just, you have to find your way out of it. Yeah. Compassionate listening. And yeah. I mean, I got that from the Buddhists, you know, they, they're the best at teaching compassionate listening. Yeah. Yeah. I've also, I don't know if you're familiar with Tara Brock. How would I, how would I describe? She, I mean, she's really the, the Buddhist thinking. She takes that perspective, okay. but it's, she, I don't know if she's a therapist. She wrote the book Radical Acceptance, but. Her name is Tara? Tara Brock. Anyway, I, I really enjoyed that book. It was a lot of introduction to Buddhist thinking. Okay. But much of her, her practice is about sitting with the pain and just this too. This too is part of my journey. This too is part of me becoming who I need to become. But it's the compassionate listening with yourself, but also with others, instead of just trying to like challenge or discount or offer an easy way out yeah. the advice. It's just this too. And to yeah. not hide it. And that's been huge for me in, in trying to be more resilient. I'm curious, I don't know if this whether it's your take on it in your life or any ideas that you want to share. What do you think is the difference between someone choosing to just throw in the towel versus staying in the fight? to continue to build that resolve. What do I think the difference is? For me, it's not that I didn't temporarily throw in the towel. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You know, I was I was I was going to take a little break, you know, like I <laughs> um but I get my example from kiddos. So if we're talking about grief, for example, kids will be sad one moment and then happy the next. They experience emotion in moments. It's really just mindfulness, right? Or being present. Mm -hmm. But us, I noticed this weird thing about myself after my mother had been murdered. I felt guilty for for having fun. I felt like I shouldn't be having fun right now. You know, months later, shouldn't be having fun right now. It's just like, well, if in this moment you feel good, feel good. And if in the next moment you feel sad, feel sad. 
And I believe that for the people who decide to throw in the towel forever, it's that they don't see that life happens in moments and there'll be another moment that this, whatever it is, will pass. And I think about what you said earlier when you're like, oh, you know, my religious upbringing is still in there and it still impacts me. Even when I'm saying that out loud, I can hear the scripture <laughs> in my head, right? <laughs> and, um, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but what I do know is that this idea that weeping might endure for a night, but that there will be joy on the other side, that is inspiring and motivating to me and helps me to keep waking up every day um, and thinking about how to put one foot in front of the other. And the other thing that I think about when you, when you ask that question is, though, when I was in a deep state of depression, waking up every day, just sad that I woke up. Just like, oh God, one more day here on earth. And I would drive, I had a, a job in Omaha, Nebraska at the time. And so two and a half hours worth of straight highway with nothing but sky in front of me and soybean fields on the other side. And just thinking, what if I just ended up in the ditch? Would any, you know, what difference would it make? And what I tell people now is you have to understand the difference between depression and grief and just low levels of sadness. When you are depressed, there are people whose God's placed in our path to help us with that, to give us medicine for that, to help us get through the moment. It's kind of like if I had pneumonia, I can't just sit at home and wait for it to go away. I need to go and get somebody to help me <laughs> clear that up. Um, and I know there are people who suffer with depression kind of their whole life, but when you have event onset depression, I, don't be afraid to get somebody to help you with that. Don't be like me. Um, because what if in one of those moments of depression, I had acted on it, you know, your, your brain is failing you. And so there are people who are there to help you make sure your brain's not failing you. Yeah. Use those people. Yeah. And I took way too long to get help from a therapist. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that I was never suicidal but I did hit a very dark period where it just felt like my best days are behind me. It's never going to get better. And how do yeah. I continue to face a life where it's never going to get better? And it took me way too many years. Cause I, it was kind of like, I would tough love myself into like, you're just going to get up and you're going to do it. And it was like, I started to get this really angry voice in my head. And that was, that's what was driving me and allowing me to function. And that's a horrible place to be. And it took me way too long to, actually schedule an appointment and go start talking about things yeah. and addressing it and taking ownership of the situation and not just being like a victim. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there are ways, whether it's medication, whether it's talking, whether it's reaching out to a friend, there are ways. And yeah. from the outside, other people don't always see it. In yeah. fact, yes. most cases from the outside, the people that you love, that you want the help from, they don't see what you're feeling. No. And you have to have enough resolve to speak and to, to name it in some way and to ask somebody. Them. Yeah. It's and to, some, and to somebody. 
um, because I would venture to say when I look at pictures um, and, and things that remind me of that time in my life, I, I mean, I can hardly tell myself looking at photos, right? So how would anybody else have been able to know and been able to help? But today I'll tell you, shoot, I've got a work therapist, I've got a spiritual advisor, I've got a black therapist because she understands black people. You know, I'm not just like, listen, I have no issue talking to somebody when I, when I need to talk. And I think for me, the biggest challenge was not just making the call. I wasn't, a, I wasn't ashamed of having a therapist. For me, I was like, can we just hurry up already? Can we get, you know, it's like one, one hour, one week at a time. Like that whole process seems slow. I want to be over this right now. You know, I wanted it, I wanted it to be quick. Yeah, yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, like my default is like, well, let's just fix it. Let's yeah. find the answer. Let's research, yeah. find the drug or find the Something. whatever. Like there's going to be a fix, yeah. right? Like, and I just wanted it fixed yeah. and not that kind of a solution and honestly that's when I decided when I started like really I don't know that much about Buddhism but that's when I started being more accepting and open to this idea of meditation and being present and that suffering is the, is kind of the opposite of joy but you need suffering in order to appreciate joy and I'm like huh these things make sense to me Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe they've made me a better Christian. I don't think, you know, there are a lot of Christians who would argue against that, but I don't feel like I've made any theological sacrifices because I've adopted these particular parts of Buddhism. I think they've helped me to be more centered, especially in the work I do. I mean, there's so much trauma for me being a practitioner trying to teach people about diversity, equity, and inclusion when they're destructively blind or willfully destructive, either one of those, um, the things I hear, the things people say over and over again um, could be incredibly traumatic if I didn't have some way to handle all of that energy. That did not come from Christianity. <laughs> that came from me kind of studying, okay, let me study a couple things that the Buddhists do in order to, to be at peace. I'm curious. I've got another question. I've, I've been trying to keep a little bit to this little outline. Um, I'm, what's the best and the worst advice that you've received from others? And it can be specific to a situation or just general life advice. I find that many people I interview, whether they've lost a loved one there's always someone who means well, but they say something that is really hard to hear. And I'm curious in your life experience, what's like the best and the worst advice and help you've received from friends and family? So I talk about the best advice I've ever received being from my paternal grandmother. It's super short. Keep living, baby. (laughs) And whenever I've been confused by something, wildly indignant about something, what I've come to learn is there's something I don't see, something I don't know, something I don't understand that is what's making this so perplexing to me. And it's helped me to really say or differentiate between when I'm surprised versus when I'm disappointed. And I found that if, if I'm less surprised, then unthinkable actually ends up being the wrong word, right? <laughs> 
it's like, oh, I can imagine that this would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm disappointed that it did, but I'm not wildly surprised by it. Um, but that has come from living a little longer, seeing a little more, getting outside of my, my bubble. Um, I get to be in rural Alabama, just like I get to be in New York City or Long Island, you know, and it's, uh, um, it gives you different insight into people. I, you know, I wish I could spend some more, some more time across the globe because all of those experiences just, just teach you a little something different. And so I still kind of hold in my heart that maybe the problem is not outside me, that there's insight that I still need to have in order to be more effective. You know, it makes me less, less edgy, less all those things that don't, don't serve me well. So keep living by being all that that means. Worst advice, that one's a little harder. I'm like, I probably get bad advice all the time. But it could probably be summed up in the whole, you only live once or you have to take care of yourself. I'm going to go back to work again because I know that everyone is telling white people right now, don't expect black people to educate you. Don't expect people of color to educate you. Do not expect indigenous people to educate you. And many people in the social justice warrior space are screaming that from the rafters. But I don't have a right to be that way because I have put a stake in the sand and said, this is my life's work. <laughs> and if, there, if I have a holy discontent, it's people who will get up every day and do the same thing every day. And it is not something they're fully committed to. I say that this, I am fully committed to educating adults around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I then cannot pick and choose when I want that to be true. Um, Are there some things that I'm just so surprised I still have to answer? (laughs) Sometimes. Well, let me change that language. Am I disappointed that there's some things I still have to answer? Yeah. Sometimes. Like, I don't, I don't always understand why I have to explain to someone that the Confederate flag is not a symbol of heritage, that it was absolutely erected as a symbol of hate, directly related to the Civil War and slavery. But then when I remember, man, the education systems that some of us have been educated in don't talk about this at all. And so how would I, how would people know differently? Right. And that's, opening my heart up, living more, seeing more, uh, being exposed to more. And so it's not about I only live once. What, what change am I trying to make in the world 200, 300, 400 years from now? What do I want to be true? Do I still want us to be having these same challenges? And if not, how far am I going to move the ball in the time that I have here? Um, which is why I don't like you only, what you only live once. And then you know, that whole idea that you got to look out for yourself. Um, I'm in far too many underrepresented groups. Far too many. And when that is the case, the power, the strength is in numbers. The individual won't help us get there. You know, we've got to be able to try to find ways to work together. And it's challenging. I mean, if anybody who's ever done a college <laughs> college uh, group workshop group project knows exactly what I'm talking about 
Uh, sometimes the team members don't pull the weight and sometimes I'm the one who's not pulling mine. Um, but I can't get the grade by myself. And if we, if we can get more people to think that, and I don't think I've got to get everybody to think that. I think there's a critical mass of people that if we can get them to say, hey, listen, we're all in the same boat together and one end of the boat has a hole in it, how are we going to repair it versus saying, oh, my end is dry, <laughs> that we might be able to, um, to resolve it. But I, I do have several family members who have, quote unquote, financially made it. And they regularly talk about how, you know, you got to look out for your own self and your own family. And if I'm going to center this idea and concept of white supremacy, that's not one that I want to take with me. No, thanks. My, my husband and I talk a lot about how, how do we in, improve the situation in our country. And it's like the many situations I think because there are so many areas where we can improve collectively, we have become so divided. There's, there's so many layers to that conversation about where we are politically. There's no simple evaluation. But what you're saying about how do we hit critical mass toward the right things, right? What, what really is the hole in the boat that is threatening the well-being of our country right now? that you can get behind because there are many in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. And how, how do we build more bridges and how do we rally around those things that we care about so yeah. that we can hit a critical mass, whether yeah. it's race relations or, you know, whatever policy you think this country needs, how do we build those bridges? How do we, how do we listen to each other again? And I, I don't know the answers to any of that, but it's yeah. something we talk about a lot. And it's easy to say, like you mentioned, right? Like, well, my corner of the boat is dry. And <laughs> you get these situations where I have family members who, like, like what you're saying, well, we'll just move into our own little corner of the world and we'll just find our own separate peace. And I think more and more people are doing that. And it's like, how can you, how can you fault that or challenge that? But at the same time, how do we ever make it better? Yeah. How do we ever make it better without engaging and being vulnerable or willing to reach out and exchange help for help and, and really build community? Mm-hmm. I don't know all the answers, but it's something I'm thinking a lot about. And I, I, I wish I had more power, but power is not granted. It often has to be earned and taken I mean, I'm speaking really abstractly because there's, there's so many hurdles, I think, for our country right now. Um, but we have to find bridges. We have to listen to each yeah. other. We have to be willing to see it from someone else's perspective and build a better country for all of oh, us. people, yeah. All of us. So I will say one, uh, one thing that's incredibly frustrating to me right now is that I am credible in leadership at the doctoral level. I've read way more books than I care to talk about. And we are acting like, and when I say we, I'm just saying Americans, because we don't need to separate along party lines. Mm-hmm. We are acting like that our current president is a good example of leadership. And it's like, 
you, you know, this is not qualitative. It's not as leadership is not as qualitative as we try to make it out to be. We know that what the comp, the 67 competencies are that make for a good leader. And we know which ones you need if you're going to be in public service. We know which ones you're going to need if you're going to be an executive. And if you layer those two on top of each other, he has absolutely none of them. And support is policy. Tell me what his policy position is. You know, and I think sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And and I'm still just talking about the collectively as Americans because we have selective amnesia. You know better. Mm -hmm. And you can't make decisions just based on money. And when he was up for election and we kept saying, oh, but he's a successful businessman, give him a run at it. I would venture to argue that being a successful businessman actually probably makes you a worse president because businessmen make decisions based on quarters, <laughs> based on, you know, what do the purchasers want? Uh, what is what do the, um, the stakeholders need? The president of the United States should think about, as should any executive who's doing public service, should be thinking about how can I lift the most number of bodies up and leave the least number of dead bodies in the wake. And that's just not his temperament. Not at all. And when we, want, when we deny this like so overtly and suggest that the issue is more that, you know, it's uh, liberal media, I'm disappointed. Disappointed. Same. Yeah. I'm disappointed. I wish it were just policy position. It's not. Right. It's, there is no discussion of policy because, as you mentioned, there is no policy on the table to yeah. be created. Right. Um, I, I never thought I'd see an era in this country that I'm seeing now. And Tell I see it. so much bigger and broader than politics and policy. It's everything you said about leadership. It's, it's everything to do with character and human decency. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's like, I don't even know the words anymore. And I still try to stay apprised of what's happening in our world because I don't want to be someone who just hides in my corner. Yeah. And it's so exhausting to even pay attention to the news every day. Yeah. Especially, and then imagine I I listened to both of the major news networks, both of them. mm -hmm. And um, imagine this. I have black people in my spaces who are Trump supporters. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like houseway. I'm so that that women can support him, that Republicans can support him, that like and I I've Christians. Tried, Christians. Yeah. And Christians. I've gone on my, my roller coaster of poor people. Angry. Yeah. And then I get to this point where hearing about friends and family who are still in support and I've tried really hard like why help me understand what you see and open a dialogue about it and like you said there's a certain willful ignorance whether they're not they're not willing to see or they've card stacked so much but they that they can in one in one conversation hold up Christian ideals and then in another conversation support someone who in my estimation, has absolutely no connection with any of those ideals. And 
it's just like, how do you, I mean, you vote, right? You vote. Yeah. How do you make, how do you make sense of that? But at the same time that we have, um, this is an example. And the only reason I bring it up is because when you look at the divisiveness that is happening in our nation, Mm -hmm. attitude reflects leadership. And as long as we want to have somebody divisive, you know, because this was the will of the people, maybe not the majority, but a big enough of the majority that he won the electoral college and that's our system today. So it was the will of the people to put someone who's divisive in the president, the seat of the presidency of the United States of America. And what is happening is a direct, there should be zero surprise from anybody who studies leadership. That's why you remove a bad leader. We have years and years and years of data that says people don't leave companies, they leave bad leaders. And so what do you think was going to happen when you put a leader like that at the helm? But I've had apologists who have made like, who've said, Oh, look what Trump's, excuse me, what Trump has done. He's had an amazing response to the pandemic. He's pro-life. There's no way for me to know for sure, but I imagine that Donald Trump has no problem with an abortion if he needs to pay for one. And there's no way for me to know for sure, but you can just look at the history of behaviors and say, well, why wouldn't he? Like what, what, what evidence do you have that he supports uh, pro-life? And if he, because that's what my family members get, get stuck in their support. They're like, this is, I'm a single issue voter. I don't really care what else he does. Abortion should be illegal uh, in the United States. What do you hope to see in this country in your lifetime? Change is incredibly, can be incredibly incremental, small. But I don't believe it's inconsequential. And as I've started to study more about race, less about difference in general, but more about race. Mm -hmm. I see that there's always racial progress followed by a regression. Racial progress followed by a regression. In my lifetime, and let's assume I've got 40 more years on the planet, I would like to see us put anti-regression strategies in place. When we're in these moments, like right now, in the gutter going, why in the world are we so divisive? We all need to be working on this. I would love to see us say, okay, now you know it's going to get better because it always does. And when it does, we're never going to go back to, oh, well, you know, we're in a post-racial society. <laughs> We've got to put something in place to, to get off of this Sisyphean cycle we're on. And I would like to see that because if that happens, then maybe I'm right 400 years from now, this problem can be fixed once and for all. Nobody like me having to do this work ever again. I hope it does not take 400 years. <laughs> look at the last 400 and the rate of progress in the last 400. It might. It might. Well, and you know, progress, regression, progress, regression. That's why I say humans are unlike all other animals in that we have the ability to compute and think. We see the pattern. Let's break it up. Let's yeah. break it up. And for all my clients, I invite them to create that when they're asking me for diversity, equity, and inclusion plans. I'm like, all right, five years from now, we got a new executive. How's the board going to hold you accountable to this, to getting this done? Because this shouldn't change as your strategic 
plan changes. So it does. It's very insightful. And I, I had never stopped to consider that. Of course, I know we make progress. We lose some of it. We make some, yeah. lose some, but the, the big arc of history is hopefully making things better. And we've seen that, but that gives me a lot to think about. So that's very insightful. Thank you. You're welcome. I like talking to you. I'm glad fun. we're connected today. It is fun. What other what other topics would you like to cover that we haven't or anything you want to bring up that we haven't before I, I ask my last question? Um, there was something else you said that made me think of this analogy. I think it was when you were talking about your husband. You know, I think about um, the culture change that we need to make as if it's one big garden. And we've got all these people who like to do different roles in the garden. We have people who like to go till the soil and get it ready um, for new plants to grow. And those people are special, right? They're willing to go into harsh conditions and acquiesce a bit, deal with brutal sun and hard labor, toiling, knowing that they're not going to be able to go that deep. They're just going to be able to scratch the surface to get ready for somebody else to do their work. Tillers, I imagine, are people we don't really remember because... Who cares about the tilling? We know it's necessary, but it doesn't produce any fruit. Most of us are planters. We go in, somebody else has done kind of the hard work. We come in after them and and build something beautiful. And what's the challenge with tillers and planters is that we like to build things. And so sometimes tillers and planters can go, oh, that looks like a weed, but is it really? Maybe we can use that dandelion in our dandelion salad. So let's make space for this weed in our garden. But I've got a little patch of rocks right between my my driveway. And it's fascinating because nothing can grow there. I tried to grow a bush there once. It died under the Midwest heat and sun. I try to put things in pots there. Sometimes even the pots get too hot, you know, and kill my little plants. So unless I was watering them twice a day, in the morning before the sun rose and in the evening after the sun went down, it died. But you want to know what does grow there, Cindy? Weeds. Yeah. (laughs) Weeds are incredibly tolerant, right? They don't need ideal conditions. Weeds just need a little bit of space and you'll see them pop up in just the most unthinkable places, which is why we need weed pullers. We need those people who go deep, who push us, who will burn everything down to keep weeds out of our garden. And it's a diversity issue because planters and tillers think weed pullers are too too divisive. And weed pullers will sometimes think that tillers are assimilating or can be tokens. But All of these roles are necessary for a thriving garden. And when we make progress, it's on the backs of tillers and planters. But when we regress, it's because we decided, oh, let us make a little space for these weeds in our garden. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I don't get a lot of popularity from this statement, but for me, inclusion does not mean include everything. There's no space for hatefulness. There are some voices that do need to be silenced. And if we can keep our minds around that, I think we make some decent progress. 
That's that's really great. My the conversation my husband and I often have. He's much more the radical weed puller mm-hmm. philosophy, and I'm like freedom of speech, and we have to recognize and under you know it's like it is a hard conversation because we always need to ensure that we're creating safe spaces where growth can happen. And if there are entities, weeds, however you want to refer to this, if there is something that's challenging the health of the environment, of challenging the health and the opportunity of growth for others, they are a threat. And how, how you make that call obviously is a difficult decision that takes a lot of wisdom. And I, that's a really scary job for me because I don't want to be the one who, who pulls the wrong weed. But yeah, I do think I it's a conversation that needs to happen because this, this, there are many destructive, dangerous ideas and people who, under the guise of free speech, are doing an incredible amount of damage. Yeah. That are, it's really hurting all of us. Yeah. And it's, it's a, hard, a hard task, but I do think it's necessary. Yeah. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to open people's hearts up. You know, I was telling you that when you asked me, how do you tell people to be ready for the unthinkable? When people are willfully destructive, I find that that's what they need. They need some life altering event to help them to see things differently. Maybe a a parent dying. Maybe I need to find out a, I've got a kid is um, in the LGBTQ community for me to open my heart up to that. Or maybe I need to be friends with someone who's an immigrant and have listened to their experience. But I don't specialize in that work. You know, I don't um, I don't know how to help you open your heart. But what I do know how to do is if you are blindly destructive, like you don't know that you're destructive. I can't I do specialize in the thinking business. So let's talk about what you these ideas you have and what's actually as true or more true and see if you still keep the same position. And for me the culturally blind people are honestly some of the hardest ones to deal with because at least somebody who's willfully destructive, I know where they stand. The blindly destructive person will look you right in your face and be just the nicest, kindest, you know, most empathetic person in the world, but their belief systems to be so damaging. And I don't, you know, it's like, how do you get people more information? Yeah. Especially when on social media, everybody's voice gets equal weight. Yes, yes. I've had to back away a lot from yeah. social media. There's only, I don't know, there's just not a lot of good that can come when the conversations we need to be having, I think, are long-form conversations where we're listening, where there's depth, where we have time to really express so many facets of yeah. what we're thinking and where it comes from. And there's not much you can, there's not a lot of ground you can cover on social media. I have to go back a lot and just like, I'm not going to engage in that. I'm not going to. Yeah. Um, I, You're not going to be able to change people. Although I will say one time I was thinking ridiculously about it, an idea and a concept and some guy handed my ass to me on social media and I was like, oh yeah, I got it. You know, like mm-hmm. I got it. And, and so there's a part of me that's like, okay, sometimes I guess people do learn in that way. But for the most part, I, I am... I'm open to learning how I might be wrong. What I'm not open to is when people present things as if they're factual, when it's just like, no, my love, that's just your lived experience. That's not factual. 
So the question I always end on is what hard-earned wisdom does the world need to hear from you right now? The hard-earned wisdom that I think the world needs to hear from me right now has been encouraged by Mr. George Floyd. And it is sometimes when our blinders get removed from our eyes, it can be overwhelming, you know? It can be too much to see. But what we have to hold close to our hearts is we were blind. Not everybody was blind. And so there might be people, hundreds if not thousands of them, who have been doing the work, who have been fighting the battle, and who welcome your new visibility and honor that you were the one who could not see. (laughs) We see. We see. And so as people decide to be allies in the work, uh, find their space, be educated, pick your path, and try not to be too overwhelmed. Just join the Calvary. It's been weighty to have CEOs of companies I've known for five years basically let me know they haven't been listening to me for five years. But they saw a terrible shark bite on television and now they see. I'm grateful. Welcome to the fold. Now let's write the course of everything that you've done wrong in the last five years while you had your blinders on. Am I making sense? Like there's this need to just go, let me go see what I can do now. And it's like, "Mm." I want you to go back through a few things that you've already done with your blinders on and see if we can make amends to that. Give it a shot. My, My perspective, obviously as a white woman, I remember learning about, you know, quote, black history, Mm -hmm. right? And so part of me is like, well, I was educated. Not really. The the answer is that not really. I was introduced to some ideas periodically. But I really like, I watched Watchmen on HBO and my husband and I were like, is this historical? You know, and then we learned Black Wall Street. How, how did we not know? And in different, you know, over the last few months and all the news and all the things that hit and that you hear and don't hear what is being fed to you based on your past preferences, what you're even exposed to and what's happening is different for all of us because yeah. of algorithms, right? Right. So many layers to this, but I think I've been through the, the white guilt, the defensiveness, the anger, but I'm not racist, right? And and having to unpack and sit with all of that and what can I do that actually matters? How can I be better? It's a journey for all of us. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, there are things you've seen that I will probably never understand. How do I listen? How do I listen and sit with and learn to do better? And that's my, that's my work right now. I don't know what the, what the, the public or shared space will look like for me yet. But for me, it's been reflection, personal education, not getting defensive, 
but sitting with it and listening. And I think what we're, as collectively as a nation, what we're up against is what we've always been up against. How do we sustain improvements? How do we sustain and not regress? How do we not wait for the next shark bite to give a damn again? Right. How do we sustain that work? That's what I'm trying to think about. And I don't know the answer. I don't know yeah. if you have any additional thoughts. How do we sustain that energy to continue to make that progress without regression? Yeah. Well, you're, you've, you've got the first two steps down, right? Awareness has happened. And now you're in reflection stage, thinking about what you've learned, bringing in new information. And then we just have to test it, you know, to test what we, what we know. So, you know, if I think about your d- beautiful design abilities, <laughs> people will overlook the mosquitoes. Don't overlook them. You know, if there's a, um, an insinuation in some leadership program where it's saying that a heavy, well, it's, where it's implicitly associating heavy with being lazy or heavy with being a performance improvement problem, fix it. Like, don't let that publication go out like that. And, and people will say, oh, but Nicole, that's just so small. Change is incremental. It is not inconsequential. The people who are waving at me on my morning trail walk, who have never waved before, it matters. It matters. Does it fix everything? No. But it's the one less mosquito bite I have to deal with every day. And if we can go through the world trying to figure out how we, we, there's the individual, yes, but then how can we join forces with some other person or group? And that's where the decision point comes. That's the next step. How can I take my own energy and now say, all right, let me, let me combine with some other person or group to get some collective power and energy around it. And you can't ever just kind of look up at the whole house, at the whole institution and go, oh my God, this is so big. Mm-mm. Try not to do that. You got, imagine you got a little hammer in your hand and you got to tear your whole house down. It's not helpful to you to look up at the whole house. <laughs> it's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming um, because it's one reason why I talk about what's going on in the States. Not that I don't think about that uh, there's collective responsibility across the globe, but um, that I have to get my level of education up, my level of awareness up about what's going on across the globe and see where there is some solidarity and, and overlap. And that's what we all have to do. You know, um, whether that's you're working in the restaurant industry or retail or education, doesn't matter. Carve out your space and do what you can um, and then invite other people, other people along. It's not simple. It's not simple. It's, it's not even easy, but I don't think it's impossible. I agree with you. And it's beautiful. And we all need to commit to it. Is there anything I can do to help you or be of service in any way? Well, not anything I can think of at the moment. Um, I'm grateful that you had me on your show. Now let me know if there's, um, if you want to talk about another topic sometime soon, I'll send you a copy of the book when it's released. I'm glad you reached out. Always a delight to talk to you. <laughs> All right, take care. I hope you discovered something valuable in this episode. If you think it will help someone else, 
please subscribe, follow, and share. You can reach me at cindyholtam at gmail.com or find me on Medium. Thank you for listening to Hard Earned Wisdom. Mm-hmm.